Well, good morning, Redeemer. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to deviate slightly from our summer series in the Psalms, and we're going to take a look at the book of Job. We're going to be looking at the entire book of Job this morning, all 1,070 verses of it. But don't worry, uh, we're going to be selective here, give you a 30,000-foot view in an attempt to explain to you the gospel according to Job. If you were expecting the Psalms in your Bible, you can just turn to your left. The book of Job is the book immediately preceding it. Um, So when we come to the book of Job, the book of Job addresses two questions for us this morning. The first is the question that theologians call the question of theodicy. And theodicy is a philosophical question. It's a philosophical question that asks, in the presence of a God who is both good and sovereign, why does evil exist in the world? Right? If God is all-powerful and he's good, why is there evil in the world? But the second question that the book of Job is going to help us address this morning is on a more personal note, and that's the question of suffering. Have you faced suffering? Have you gone through those parts of your journey, those seasons of your life, where it feels like it's always winter, but never Christmas? Horatio Spafford faced suffering. Horatio Spafford was a lawyer who lived in Chicago in the late 1800s. He was a senior partner at his law firm. He was a Presbyterian elder. And he was an investor in real estate. He had all of his money in the real estate of Chicago. Well, in 1871, the Great Fire of Chicago literally saw all of Horatio Spafford's wealth go up in smoke. Two years later, he and his wife, Anna, decided that they were going to go on a family trip, but Horatio was detained on business, and so he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead across the Atlantic Ocean to England. And on the trip across the Atlantic Ocean, their ship collided with another ship, and it sank. 226 souls were lost that day, including Horatio and Anna's four girls, ages 12, 7, 4, and 18 months. Anna got to the other side, got to England, and telegraphed, saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio got on the next ship, headed to England, and as they were crossing the spot where the accident happened, the captain alerted Horatio, and he came to the deck, and he wept, and he prayed, and then he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How do we get faith like that? After you've lost all your wealth and all your children, how do you write, it is well with my soul? We'll find the answer to that question, I think, in the book of Job this morning. You see, the book of Job pulls the curtain of this world back and takes us deep 
into the eternal counsel of God in the midst of Job's suffering. As we look at the book this morning, we'll see in chapters 1 and 2, we'll look at suffering, and we'll consider fearing God in the face of suffering. In chapters 3 through 37, we'll see sin, and we'll look at condemning God that you may be justified. And in chapters 38 to 42, we'll see surprise, and we'll look at contemplating the mystery of God that you can't understand. So, suffering, sin, and surprise. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. The way to fear God for no reason is to meditate on the unjust suffering of the innocent man. Let me say that again. The way to fear God for no reason is to meditate on the unjust suffering of the innocent man. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, your ways are above our ways. There are so many things that we can't even begin to comprehend. We're like a seven-year-old talking to a rocket scientist about jet propulsion. Father, as we come to the book of Job this morning and think about our suffering and think about the presence of evil in the world, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, let's consider in chapters 1 and 2, suffering, fearing God in the face of suffering. And in chapters 1 and 2, we go behind the scenes and we get to listen in to a conversation between God and Satan. And in Job 1, 1 through 5, Job introdu- the narrator introduces us to Job. Look at Job 1, verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Verse 5, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So the narrator here is giving you a portrait of Job. Job is a family man with seven sons and three daughters, verse 2. And he loves his family, verse 4. He spiritually intercedes for them, verse 5. He rises early in the morning. He's a wealthy man. 
He's the wealthiest man of all the East, verse 3. But most importantly, he's a godly man. Did you catch that in verse 1? He is blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. And that isn't just the narrator's assessment of Job in verse 1. It's also God's assessment of him in verse 8. The Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth? And then what does he say? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God tells Satan, here's a godly man who loves me. Here's a man who serves me. Here's a godly man who's devoted to me. And then we come to the central question of the book in Job 1, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? This is the central question of the book. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house, verse 10, and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. You see what Satan is saying? He's saying God... Job doesn't really love you for you. He loves you because of the goodies you give him. He's serving you because it benefits you. He loves you the way the children love the ice cream truck. He loves you the way my family loves the UPS truck. He loves you because of the gifts that you bring. You see, Satan's math is simple. Fortune plus family plus felicity equals faithfulness. Satan's saying, turn off the faucet of blessing and watch how fast Job turns off the faucet of devotion. Does Job fear God for no reason? Or to say it another way, can Job serve God just to get God? Is God enough? Or another way, will Job serve God If everything is taken away, is there ever a man who will serve God out of pure, simple love if there are no goodies involved? And that's what's at stake in Job's suffering. And Job never gets that information. You see, sometimes we don't have all the information. There was an AmeriQuest mortgage commercial a number of years ago And in the commercial, there's a husband coming home after work and he grabs groceries and flowers from the store and you see him enter his apartment and he's unloading the groceries and he's putting the flowers on the table and you see this white Persian cat running around in the background and then it cuts over to the wife and the wife is busily coming home from work after a long kind of hard day. And You flash back to the husband, and the husband's in the kitchen. He's got a big knife, and he's cutting up his vegetables, right? He's got a red sauce going on the stove. And then you see the white Persian cat jump up onto the counter, and it tips the red sauce, and it falls down into the red sauce. And so he's got the knife in one hand. In the other hand, he reaches down and picks up the white Persian cat covered in red sauce. And at that moment, the wife walks through the door. 
And the tagline is, don't judge too quickly. We won't, right? You see, the wife didn't have all the information. She didn't know what was going on behind the door. And brothers and sisters, that should give us an encouragement to our hearts in our seasons of suffering. You see, maybe there's more going on behind the door of our suffering than we know about. Maybe there's information about our suffering that we will never know on this side of glory. And you see, Job can never be given the reason for his suffering. He can't know about the question that Satan asks God. Why? Because if Job were to know, then if he were to know the reason, then he would be serving God because he understands. He would be serving God because it's rational. He would be serving God because he has the reason. He wouldn't be serving God out of pure, simple love. He can never have the reason. And so the disasters come. And in the first cycle of disasters, Job loses all his wealth and all his children. And the question is, will he still serve God? Will he still serve God in the midst of his loss? And the answer comes in Job 1, starting at verse 20. Look at this with me. Then Job arose And he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. You see, Job expresses terrible grief. He's tearing his robe and he's shaving his head, but he's still clinging to Yahweh. He's still worshiping. And then the second cycle of disasters comes and he's covered with sores from head to toe. And God prevents Satan from taking Job's life, but he permits him to attack Job's body. Job is infested with disease. And his wife tempts him again with a suggestion that would prove that Satan was right. Look at 2.9. Then his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity, your wholehearted devotion? Curse God and die. She's saying, do you still love God? Even when he's taken everything from you, he's clearly abandoned you, right? And here's a question for us this morning. It's a haunting question. Would you still love God if He took everything from us? If He seemed to abandon us? If He seemed to utterly turn His back on us? Job's answer comes in verse 10. But He said to her, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And with those words, the accuser, completely unbeknownst to Job, suffers defeat. Remember the charge? Does Job fear God for no reason? And the answer is whispered, yes. 
Job will fear God under any circumstances, even under direct attack in the midst of utter devastation. Job will still worship his God. Now, just because Job worships doesn't mean that he won't have any perplexity or turmoil, but he begins by worshiping even though he doesn't understand. And if the book ends there, we're done. God wins. Job's answer undoes the accuser. He's serving God without the goodies. He's professing devotion in the absence of blessing. But the book doesn't end there. Secondly, in chapters 3 through 37, let's look at sin, condemning God that you may be justified. So at the end of chapter 2, Job's friends show up and they see his grief and they weep with him and they sit with him for seven days. They sit with him for seven days. And this is a powerful expression of sympathy. It's the gift of presence. In the Jewish tradition, this became known as the sitting sevens. Sometimes in winter when God calls us to go through the dark night of the soul, nothing is more comforting than an old friend being with you and saying nothing. You see, the presence of another human being lets you know that you're not alone in your suffering. But then Job's friends open their mouths and this beautiful picture is ruined. Job's friends have different approaches, different styles for communicating truth. So Eliaphaz, and you can see his first speech in chapters 4 and 5, his model is the model of personal revelation from God, right? And so he has dreams and special visions and a special word from the Lord. Then you have Bildad, Bildad the Shuhite, and by the way, he's the shortest guy in the Bible, because he's Bildad the, the shoe height. Okay, his model is a model of ancient, dad joke, his, his model is a model of ancient tradition, right? He probably wears a bow tie, he's been to seminary, he's using uh, history and ancient wisdom. And then there's Zophar. Zophar had trouble connecting with people, getting close, being intimate, because he was always, you know, Zophar away. Um, His model is a model of the insistence of simple truth. He just just talked plain. You know, maybe there was a bit of a southern twang in his explanations. He might have used fixin' and reckon' in in his explanation. But all three of Job's friends are basically saying the same thing. They're preaching the doctrine of retribution— They're preaching the doctrine of retribution, which says that suffering is a punishment or chastisement that results from sin. And it's the idea of cause and effect, that sin brings suffering, that God punishes sin. And retribution and chastisement can be reasons for suffering, right? Proverbs teaches that right living brings good results. Hebrews teaches that God disciplines those he loves. So Job's friends are telling Job that his suffering is a result of his sin. 
And if Job would just repent of this grievous sin in his life, then God would take away his suffering. And by the way, that's a pretty terrible thing to say to someone who's just gone through Job's kind of loss. But there are two problems with their charge. First, they're totalizing the doctrine of retribution to the exclusion, to the complete exclusion of the doctrine of incomprehensibility. They've oversimplified the character of God to just one theological truth. They've replaced the God of the universe with a God that they can neatly fit into their categories, that they can easily understand. They have a passion for simplicity that eliminates mystery. There is no room for mystery. And I fear all too often that we can be like Job's friends. We have overly rigid categories and black and white opinions. And we have no room for mystery because we have God all figured out. You see, for Job's friends, there's no John 3, John 9, 3 stuff. Do you remember the man born blind? And they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the work of God might be displayed in him. You see that the works of God might be put on display. That's a reason for suffering. For Job's friends, there's no John 11:4 stuff. Remember when Jesus hears that Lazarus has died? And he says to his disciples, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. You see, this sickness is for the glory of God. That's a reason for suffering. There are more reasons for suffering than just punishment and chastisement. We can't put God in the box of the doctrine of retribution. But the second problem with their charge, what they say to Job about retribution and chastisement is true. It's theologically accurate. It's beautifully said. It's even biblical. But it doesn't apply to Job. Do you remember God's assessment of Job in 1.8? Job is blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There's no obvious gross sin in Job's life that caused the suffering. But if you know the story of the book of Job, you know in Job chapter 42 that Job repents. And the question then is, what is Job repenting of? Because if he's repenting of some sin that caused his suffering, then Job's friends are right. If that's the sin that Job is repenting of, you could have gone from Job's disaster in chapters 1 and 2 to Job's grief in chapter 3 to Eliaphaz's counsel in chapter 4 to Job's repentance in chapter 42. But Job's sin didn't happen before his disaster. Do you remember his assessment in 2.10? In this, Job did not sin with his lips. It happened, Job's sin happened in the midst of the advice of his friends. For 28 chapters, from chapters 3 to 31, through three cycles of speeches, eight speeches in all, Job's three friends beat the dead horse again and again. They say, Job, you're suffering because of your sin. Job, if you just repent 
And during these eight speeches, as Job defends himself again and again, something tragic happens. Job begins to believe his friends. After 28 chapters, Job is worn down and he gives in. He begins to believe what his friends have said, that suffering is always and only a punishment for some grievous sin. And so Job decides that God is in the wrong. And his logic goes something like this. If suffering is always a result of some sin, some grievous, obvious obvious sin, and I haven't sinned, then God must be in the wrong. See, Job's sin is that he's righteous in his own eyes. And therefore, he condemns God. And by the way, Job's not alone in being righteous in his own eyes. I think we commit Job's sin again and again whenever we find ourselves righteous in our own eyes. Whenever we justify ourselves, there's a sense in which we condemn God. And then, in chapters 32 through 37, a fourth friend comes on the scene, and his name is Elihu. And Elihu sees Job's sin And he describes Job's sin. Look at Job 32, verses 1 and 2. So these three men, the three three previous friends, ceased to answer Job. Why? Because he was righteous in his own eyes. Verse 2, Then Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because Job justified himself rather than than God. Job justifies himself instead of God. Do you see? There's no room for mystery anymore for Job. He's no longer willing to receive evil from God as he was back in 2.10. And when God shows up and addresses Job in chapters 38 to 41, God brings this accusation. Look at Job 40 verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Do you see what God's saying? God confirms Elihu's assessment in chapter 32. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? That's Job's sin. In chapters 38 through 42, we'll see surprise comprehending the mystery of God that you can't comprehend. In chapter 38, Job gets what he's been longing for the entire book, and God shows up. And God speaks into Job's suffering. The comforter has come. But this isn't the comfort that you'd expect. At first blush, it seems totally irrelevant. There's no direct address to Job's suffering. There's no direct address to Job's tragic circumstances. In fact, in God's answer, God never gives Job an answer. God never gives Job a reason for his suffering. Let's look at God's answer. In chapter 38, God takes Job on a tour of the natural world and shows Job that there are times when Job wasn't around. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? You see, there were times when Job wasn't around. God shows Job that there are things that Job doesn't control. Look at verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? You see, there are things that Job doesn't control. And God shows Job that there are places that Job hasn't been. Look at verses 16 and 17. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? There are places Job hasn't been. And then God shows Job there are activities that Job can't do. Job, can you make it rain? Verses 34 and 35. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Right? It's a tour of the natural world. God is showing Job all these things that he doesn't understand that are beyond his control. And in chapter 39, God takes Job on a tour of the animal kingdom. This is the National Geographic chapter of Scripture. And God shows Job that there are things that Job doesn't know, like when mountain goats give birth in verse 1. And there are things that Job can't control, like the donkey in verse 5, or the wild ox in verse 9. There are things that Job can't understand, like the stupidity of the ostrich, who has no understanding, verse 17. But oh man, when she runs, it is a thing of beauty. In chapter 40, God takes Job into the moral world. And he tells Job that Job is no more able to control and understand the moral world than he was the natural world, chapter 38, or the animal kingdom, chapter 39. God is saying, Job, it's beyond you. Job, there's so much that you don't understand. But I do. I understand it all. Do you see what God is saying? He's saying, Job, I'm competent. You can trust me even though you don't understand. And then at the end of chapter 40 and into 41, God introduces Behemoth, the biggest, largest land monster, and Leviathan, the biggest sea monster. And these two animals are more powerful than any animal that we know of, and they're certainly beyond Job's control. But God has them on a leash. They're like God's little pet chihuahuas. And it seems perhaps that they were more than mere animals. They appeared to be representations of evil, perhaps incarnations of evil. And it could be with these references to the behemoth and Leviathan, these incarnations of evil, that God is alluding to the fact that the real contest is with the forces of evil. But God even has the forces of evil on a leash. What's the purpose of God's answer? God is reintroducing Job to mystery. And He's showing Job, Job, there are things beyond your knowledge. There are things you don't understand. Job, there are things that you can't control. God is saying, Job, since you can't run the world, you have to trust Me to do so. 
and Job gets it. Job gets that he doesn't understand everything. Job gets that he doesn't get it. Look at 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then in verse 3, he quotes God from chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And so Job responds now to God, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job saying, I didn't understand what I was saying. There are things that I don't know. And you see, Job now accepts mystery again. In verse 4, God, Job quotes God again. God has said this line, verse 4, two times in chapter 38 and chapter 40. And quoting God, God had said, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known, and you make it known to me. And then Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I would have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. What had Job been hearing by his ears for the last 34 chapters? He'd been hearing the bad theology of his friends. He'd been hearing the theology that reduced God to the doctrine of retribution, the theology that put God in a box that limited, limited his sovereignty and eliminated his mystery. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. You see, God had shown up. The Comforter had come. And God didn't give Job a new theory of suffering or offer an explanation. He simply said, here I am. And that was enough for Job. Verse 6, Therefore, I despise myself, or the NAS here is better, therefore I retract or I reject. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job rejects, he despises, he retracts the bad theology of his friends. He rejects the theology that led him to justify himself and condemn God. He rejects the theology that led him to sin and he repents. He rejects the errors of his theology of God because now he has the God of his theology. You see, experiencing the living God will do wonders for your theology. Job repents of his sin of condemning God. He retracts what he said, and God restores him. And in his restoration, God restores Job's wealth and his family. God gives him seven sons and three daughters and exactly twice the wealth he had before. God takes everything from Job, meets him in his suffering, and then restores him. You see, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so that's the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, suffering, fearing God in the face of suffering. Chapters 3 through 37, sin, 
condemning God that you may be justified. Chapters 38 through 42, surprise, comprehending the mystery of God that you can't comprehend. But you see, the book of Job is about more than Job. It also points us to Jesus. There was another man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, and he was the wealthiest man in all of heaven. And his wealth wasn't taken from him, but he gave it up, and he gave it up willingly. And there was another unspeakable disaster afflicted on the servant of God. But this time, God didn't protect the life of his servant, but he offered it up. God met Job in his suffering, but the other servant was abandoned in his God spoke into Job's suffering, but the other servant, his suffering was met only with silence. And while Job's suffering seemed unjust, the suffering of the other servant was unjust because he was the true innocent man. You see, it's in the mystery of the true innocent man who suffers that we find the gospel according to Job. Remember God's condemnation of Job in Job 40, verse 8? Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Do you see it? That is the only way that we can be justified. God must be condemned in order for us to be justified. Your salvation is only through the mystery of the unjust suffering of the innocent man. Job's suffering whispers to our hearts of the true innocent man who suffers. Not for any sin of his own, but for your sins and for my sins. And this innocent man, this servant of Yahweh, is God Himself. And He must be condemned in order for you to be justified. You see, that's the Gospel. The justification of sinners through the condemnation of God. So Jesus Himself is a mystery who is the answer. He's a wealthy man who gave up all his wealth. wealth. He's the family man who would do anything for his sons and daughters. He's the innocent man who suffered unjustly. He is God's servant who is, in fact, God Himself. And He must be condemned in order for you to be justified. That's the Gospel according to Job. You see, the true and better Job has come. And when you meditate on that, when that seeps into the deepest part of your soul, then you'll be able to fear God for nothing. You'll be able to love Him just for Him, and the accuser will suffer defeat. And you'll realize that suffering, mysterious suffering, unjust suffering, is at the heart of the Gospel. And that will make your own suffering a little easier to bear. Perhaps even to the point that we'll be able to sing, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, the way to fear God for no reason is to meditate on the unjust suffering of the innocent man. You think about that. In the name of the Father,
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank You that You are beyond our comprehension. That You have created a world that is full of mystery. That we don't have everything figured out. And we thank You that part of that mystery is the unjust suffering of the true innocent man who is condemned so that we might be justified. As we come now to Your table, I pray that You would prepare our hearts for this sacrament that we might taste and see that You are good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.